0: That Second Thessalonians one, be verse eleven, starting verse eleven. We'll be reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfil all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lesson tonight actually begins in 2nd Peter, and so if you have your Bible still available, I'd encourage you to turn there for just a moment to the beginning of 2 Peter. When the apostle wrote the second letter, he was aware that he was writing to those who enjoyed the same precious faith that he had found. You, you know the statement that's there. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are six different Greek words that can be translated precious. And uh, all of them are slightly different, but they have to do with things that are costly, things that are extremely valuable, things that have great uh, merit to them. The one that Peter uses here in 2 Peter 1 is the Greek word that not only gives emphasis to great value, but equal value. I know a number of you use the ASV, ESV. I think at this place it's not as good because it says equal standing, and that's not really what's conveyed It is equally precious, equally costly. It's not just that it's the same as ours. It's that ours is precious as yours is precious. And what Peter is actually stating to them is that my faith, the faith, is the same as your faith, and both of them are precious. They're both costly. Peter also wanted fellow Christians, though, to be aware that Scoffers and doubters would attack that precious faith in a number of different ways. And one of the ways in which they would attack that faith would be to say that the Lord's coming or return has not happened as was promised that it would happen. Peter notes in chapter 3. That these doubters had forgotten and incidentally willfully forgotten. That the world that they said has always continued just the way it was from the very beginning was not really true. The, the, The world had seen a great flood. A flood that God promised and did not actually bring about for some time. But it came because the promises of God are always certain. God is one who keeps his word, and Peter then makes sure that his readers who may be thinking about this, well, Christ has not come, and it's been some time and incidentally not a very long time this. There there could be more doubt today, I suppose, because it's been a long time now. But Peter wants them to understand that God does not operate on a human timetable. And we've noted this verse a number of times, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Time is different for God and man. We are limited in time. God is not. And He's in control of time. We simply observe it. And do we ever observe it? We have all kinds of timekeeping devices in our home, in our pocket, everywhere else. We note the changing of days, the changing of months, the changing of years. We pay attention to birth dates and anniversary dates and holidays. We're very time conscious. The beginning of a new year for humans is something that catches our attention. And and it's not just the changing of the calendar or writing a different number for the year on your checks. It's often a time that we set aside to try to reflect concerning the past and resolve concerning the future. We look at what's happened and we look toward what could happen. This is the first Sunday of a new year. It's not the first day, the way we count time, as we mark it, but it is the first Sunday of a new year and it might be worthwhile for us to spend some time thinking both about the, the past and the future. And I would choose to do that tonight under two headings. We call the first of those closing gates. My father's parents lived on a small farm midway between the towns of Gonzales and Luling, less than 100 miles from here. And when I was eight years old, I spent most of one summer at their place, with my grandparents. It was a great time. There was a gate to get into the property from the highway. The fence was very close to the highway. There was a gate. You had to open the gate to get into the property. Within the property, there were also several cattle pens that had gates. My grandfather reminded me frequently and sometimes sternly that I always needed to be sure that I closed the gates so that the cattle would not get out. And I was reminded of that when, when I read about a man who was on his deathbed and was asked if there was anything that he really wanted to say while he could still speak. They knew his life was ebbing away. And here was his reply. Only that throughout my life, I have always tried to close the gates behind me. I wouldn't be surprised at all if all of us have some gates that need to be closed after leaving 2017. We have all likely failed to do some things we needed to do. And you can reflect on that and it shouldn't take you long to think about some of them. Or maybe we did some things that we should not have done. I think we recall that statement of frustration in Romans 7:19, when Paul writes, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. There's been some argument among commentators about whether Paul is writing that from a pre-Christian viewpoint or as a Christian. I don't think it makes much difference because I think it's true in both cases. There are frustrations because there are things we know we shouldn't do and we do them anyway. And there are things that we know we should do and, and, and or should not do and we do them. Whether we did wrong because we were stubborn or weak or negligent, there's only one way to take care of it. And that is to admit it and to ask God to forgive us for it. We're aware of 1 John 1 verse 9. We allude to it often. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that statement of John is true, and it is, then I think you could also say without any violence to the text, if we don't confess our sins... God will not forgive us and he will not cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe it's a a faith problem that we need to deal with. Maybe we haven't been trusting God the way we should trust him. Or or maybe we have not strengthened our faith by regular worship, consistent worship with the church. Or or maybe we can sense that our devotion to God is lacking, that we do not love God as we once loved him. Something's missing spiritually in our lives. Again, we must repent, but we must also really change. It's not good enough to say I'm disappointed in myself or my faith is not strong and leave it at that. There has to be some improvement excuses need to be replaced with effort. We need not to try to find ways to say, well, I, I know I'm not doing right, I know I'm not what I should be, I know I don't love God, but, but there are all these extenuating circumstances that will never get us where we want to be. Perhaps it's a relationship problem. We might be harboring bitterness or resentment towards someone. And the Bible gives us very clear instructions about how to handle personal problems. It needs to be face-to-face, not behind one's back, and it needs to be with the goal of reconciliation, not further separation. I think this would be a good time to close the gate on the past, but we have to do it the right way. And if we leave the gate open, our problems will follow us throughout 2018. And believe it or not, they may get worse. The other side of it is what we would call opening doors. And we use this term because we recall what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16. As he comes to the end of that letter to the Corinthians, he wants them to understand travel plans. And he says to them that he intends to stay in Ephesus until the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Hopefully he would be able to uh, do some good with Jews who were celebrating. Or at least not have to travel during that time. And The reason for that is given in verse 9 of his wanting to stay. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. He says, for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Paul understood that there were opportunities available. That's what an open door represents, opportunity. And opportunities are like open doors because we have a way to get to them. Now, Paul did not deny the fact that there were adversaries that just because there are opportunities doesn't mean that there won't also be obstacles to get to the opportunities. But the fact is that Paul said, the door is open. One of the things we like about the coming of a new year is the opportunity to improve, to do better. And we might want to make a resolve and, and if you didn't do this the first day of the year, it's okay. You can do it any time. A good time would be now. We can make a resolve to start doing what we haven't been doing. Or perhaps doing better what we're already doing. You, you may not be doing what you should, and you may be doing something really good, but we can always improve and do better. I think that's akin to the spirit that Paul showed when he wrote the words of Philippians 3, 13, and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was a forward-thinking person. Now, Paul had a lot of baggage from the past. He had done some terrible things, but that was not the focus of his life. Yes, he would admit it when called upon to admit it, but the focus of his life was to press on. Maybe we need to work on our courage. I think we could resolve what the writer of Psalm 56 verse 4 wrote. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Paul would reiterate that same idea, of course, in Romans 8. We need to trust God because God is the one who can be trusted. And trusting God, we can overcome any fear we have. There are plenty of open doors before this congregation and before you personally in 2018. We all have an opportunity to grow in biblical knowledge. That's why we have Bible classes to help in that regard. And and, and if you're not taking advantage of every Bible class you can come to, you need to think about that. Are you better because you don't come, or would you be better if you did come? We can and should study, of course, privately two classes a week even if you attended all of them every week, are really not enough. We need our own development. And we do that oftentimes privately as we ponder scriptures. Daily reading obviously will help. The more you read your Bible, the more you'll know about the Bible. The less you read, the less you know. And so will regular attendance, consistent attendance. I got a phone call this past week from a man, member of the church at a nearby town. And he was lamenting the state of that congregation. And I don't think he was just trying to be critical because he was really concerned and wanted to know what he could do to help improve that. And here's what he said. One week a month, we have a lot of people come. Three weeks of the month, not so much. And it's sort of like people come and they get all they need in one week and one service, and then they disappear. And he said that's consistent. They're consistent in their non-attendance. That church will never get anywhere if that attitude prevails and is not changed. How about prayer? What about the open door prayer? You know, isn't that one of the greatest open doors we have? Can you you just imagine for a moment what it is for us as human beings to be able to access the throne of God and have him hear us? And that he invites us. He, He doesn't just say, okay, I'll let you come. He invites us to come to him. He's ready to hear us. And we need to pray often, not just asking for God to do things for us, but admitting that we need him and admitting that we need his mercy. And we need to pray a prayer of devotion to him, saying to him that we want to serve him. Not that we want him to serve us, we want to serve him. We need to be more involved, of course, in good works. These are familiar verses. I know that. But listen to them again. From Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he says to those who would follow him, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Later, Paul would write to Titus. And in Titus 2 and verse 7 and 8, he would say to him, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And then in verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Does that describe us, godly people, righteous people? If those words don't describe us, if that, if those statements aren't true of us, then we need to change. And if we don't, can we expect God to bless us for not doing his will? It's foolish to think God will as much bless us for not doing as for doing. What about developing a greater spirit of optimism? I don't know what your general feeling is about the outlook of this congregation. I think we've had some setbacks. I think we've had some disappointments in this year, but that doesn't mean that we can't be hopeful for the future that we can't think the best days could be ahead for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we uh, simply ignore problems or discount any dangers that may face us. It means that we believe our God is greater than our problems. And that if we are devoted to him and his strength is used in our behalf, things will go well for us. Romans 8.31, the apostle would say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Our God is greater than any problem that we might face as a church or as individuals. Here's the simple challenge I'm giving you tonight. Close the gates that need to be closed. And go through the open doors that God provides for us. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, you see us as we are. You know our strengths and our weaknesses. Our fears, our failures. But you also know, Father, our hearts well enough to know that. We do want to please you. And tonight we ask your blessings upon this congregation and on our people. That we might be a light to this dark world. That each of us might personally take it as our responsibility to give glory to you. And to cause your great name to be spread throughout this community. Help us to be optimistic about our future because we know your love is real. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Between the past and the present is today. The past and the future, today is that in-between place. And so the question as we close is, are you right with God? Right now. Not have you been right with God. Or do you intend to be right with God. Are you right with God right now. Paul was correct when he wrote. Behold. Now is the accepted time. Behold. Now is the day of salvation. It's all you have. Today. If you need to make a change. Either to leave the world. And come into Christ. By being baptized for the remission mission of your sins. Do that tonight. Don't wait. If you're a Christian and you're not living as you ought to be living and you need us to pray with you and for you, we'll do that as well if you'll come while we stand and sing.